The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org. ...conversations on the crisis. I am your host, Stephen Heiner, and we are joined today by our regular guest, His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn of Most Holy Trinity Seminary and Father Anthony Chicada of St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church. Your Excellency, Father, thank you for joining us. Hi, Stephen. Hello. Clerical Conversations uh, on the Crisis is a production of Restoration Radio, and um, we try to encounter different topics each month that relate to what has happened since the Second Vatican Council. Today's topic is Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre's one of the challenges of having um, a, dead, a, fig, a dead figure in the traditional movement is that sometimes people will try to arrogate the ghost of the archbishop and say what the archbishop would do here, what he would do there. Um, not only is that problematic, but it also sometimes takes away focus from what, what originally was attractive about uh, the man in the first place. So, what was, what was his character like? How did he conduct himself with other priests? What what drew people to him? And most of the priests that have been ordained by the Society of St. Pius X in the last quarter of a century never met the Archbishop because he passed away in 1991. And so with us today are two, um, two members of the clergy who not only knew the Archbishop but were ordained by him. So um, I think, Your Excellency, I can start with you. Uh, do you remember how you, how you heard of the Archbishop, um, when you first met him, and, and what impressions you had from your first meeting? Yes, it was back in 1971. Um, <clears throat> oh, like uh, winter of 1971. Uh, I and others were uh, utterly disgusted with the Novus Ordo Seminary, and the prospects of the future. I, I would say to myself, I don't want to be in the same rectory with these people when I'm in my 50s. <laughs> and uh, I would just look around and, and look at the, the condition of, of, of what was in the seminary, I mean, between heresy and various forms of immorality and just all sorts of things. I just uh, wanted nothing to do with it, crazy masses and... Uh, and then the the word from the major seminary was that you know while the masses were not quite as crazy, the theology was crazier. That it was it was more modernistic, and uh, so uh, I and others uh, decided to try to first the first way we tried to solve that problem was to go to other dioceses to see if they were more conservative. And, well, that didn't work out. In some cases, they seemed to be more liberal. And so that was a dead end. And, and finally, one of the seminarians uh, uh, wrote away to a publication known as The Voice that was put out in Canandaigua, New York. Uh, it has since passed away. But uh, it was a hard-line um, uh, little paper that was a, a place in which a lot of people met each other. Uh, at that time, there was no Internet or anything. Uh, people would write in, and uh, it was a, sort of an underground, uh, small circulation little paper. And uh, this one seminarian wrote in and said, does anybody know of any 
Catholic conservative seminary out there, and and a priest from Kentucky, and I can't remember his name right now. Father Ramsey, I think. Ramsey, yeah. yes, yeah. wrote back uh, and said, yes, there is a uh, an archbishop in Europe who is founding a uh, a seminary in Switzerland. Now he had just founded it because this would have been he founded it in no well the fall of 1970. We were writing this in about January of 71, so this was pretty early on. And uh, so it was a fledgling thing at that point. And so uh, I wrote to him uh, and uh, arranged to meet with him. And uh, on March 15, 1971, I and now uh, Bishop Kelly and now Father Anthony Ward met with him in New York on that day, on March 15, 1971. And he was accompanied by an English uh, seminarian. And, uh, was, so was the, he visiting New York, or did, you at, was he, was, did he come on your request, or was he just in town? He was, uh, his main purpose for being in the United States was to visit the Bishop of Covington, Kentucky. Because the Bishop of Covington, Kentucky was a, a father of the Holy Ghost. In other words, that sounds funny. Okay. He, was, he was the Holy Ghost father. <laughs> That's a little heresy there for you. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, he was the Holy Ghost father, and he hoped, because you know, uh, Archbishop Bill Fever had been the superior general of that order, and he hoped that the Bishop of Covington would uh, provide a place to have a seminary in his diocese. So the idea was to show him that the Bishop of Freiburg uh, accepted his pious union uh, and that the Bishop of Sion in Switzerland accepted to have a, a house in his, in his um, uh, diocese. And the idea would be, why don't you uh, permit us to set up a, a, a seminary or a house or whatever, in, in your diocese. That was the whole point of it. So it, it, the meeting in New York uh, worked in well with um, with the um, going to Ohio. Uh, <laughs> later, he said that uh, that uh, all that the bishop wanted to do was talk about his dog. <laughs> uh, when I asked him later, how did it go out in, in Covington? He said all he wanted to do was talk about his dog. So he obviously put him off. And from that point of view, it was not a success. Uh, but uh, uh, he did meet with us. We had dinner with him and talked uh, to him at length. Uh, so that, that was, an, and I had a very nice impression of him. So did the other two. So I'm assuming, Your Excellency, you both, all three of you, spoke French at least passingly well enough to have a conversation. Because I can't no, imagine your uh, No, that's well. why the English seminarian was there. <laughs> oh, okay. He spoke French perfectly and well, obviously English perfectly, and uh, we got along that way. Uh, I, I didn't know enough French at the time to really communicate with him, you know, to any extent. So, what were your impressions from from the dinner, and then afterwards, you and the now Bishop Kelly and, and Father Ward? What 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 did you all think? What did you come away with from that? Well, uh, we all had an excellent impression of him as a person, uh, and he always gave an excellent impression as a person. I mean, he, he gave a, 
the impression of a an intelligent man who was at the same time very pious and serious uh, about his faith. Uh, he was uh, very firm about uh, the necessity to hold on to the traditional mass. Now, remember, this is 1971, so we're already in the new mass time. And... Um, uh he, he and at that time and for that time he said some very firm things against the modernists and i say for that time because today we have much higher standards so to speak and we we've, we've all studied the problem much more than we did in 1970 or 71 i mean i was still laboring at that time under the idea that Paul VI was a wonderful pope who was surrounded by an evil entourage, and that he was, you know, he was powerless to do anything. And the reason for all of the chaos in the church was because of the evil entourage. I mean, I was still thinking that, and and uh, so, you know, for his time, he was saying some very, very good things uh, against modernism and, and the changes, and and that really dazzled all of us because we were constantly hearing from the clergy just the opposite. Uh, it was very discouraging at the time. We to, to be a traditionalist at that time was to be a nut. I mean, everyone was against you. What are you, you know, crazy that you want to go back to this? And, and you were uh, just a, a handful of people, a tiny, tiny handful, and despised at that. So... To, to hear somebody say the things, and especially an archbishop of the church, they, to say the things that you believed as well, was um, something that was uh, very heartening. Uh, so uh, all of those things, uh, you know, made uh, contributed to a very, very good impression of him. Uh, all of us were very dazzled, you might say, in a good sense, by him. Right, well, and I would say, you know, some things maybe don't change. A tiny handful of despised, it doesn't sound that different uh, 40 years on, I guess. Oh, you um, have no idea. You have no idea, Stephen. The, well, I know it's the, like, we have, definitely it's night and day, I'm sure. Oh, I mean, Father Chicago remembers, if you were at any kind, if you, even if the idea that, you know, you thought that Paul VI was great, but he had the evil entourage, if you oppose the new changes at all, you were considered really and truly to be a nut. There was something yeah. wrong with you psychologically. And you were just an outcast, a complete outcast, and there was no mainstream in it. You know, there was no... Now the, the traditional movement is is a, a worldwide movement that at least people recognize. Uh, we, you felt so isolated at, in those times. You, 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 only Father Chicago could confirm that. He's old enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, sure, sure. I mean, you know, that's absolutely true. You had, um, you did not know what was going on. Uh, you didn't have the means of communications that uh, we have now to say communicate with someone like uh, uh, Bishop Sanborn, who was out in um, a seminary in New York. You know, I was uh, isolated. Uh, basically, there's a small group of us at the seminary in Milwaukee. And um, you had the same idea that, well, you know, Paul VI was, it was an evil entourage. And, and um, you know, you, of course, were trying to be uh, loyal to him. But, uh, you know, at the same time, you 
you very much had the feeling that uh, you know you were an outcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, the very way, much the way that you both are describing it, I would think, is it like how our society would perceive a nine eleven truther? It's like, oh well, it's crazy to talk about that, and it's a forbidden topic. Was it something like that? Yeah, well, not just. Uh, you were. It, you see, everything was coming up roses at that time. The uh. the changes were still had the all of the energy of the the normal church, the pious the twelfth church. So there were vocations. There, you know, the seminaries were still filled up. Everything was just going, going, and moving quickly. And uh, you were just missing the boat. And what, what, what's wrong with you? Why don't you get on this this, this vessel? You know, and you know you're some sort of a dinosaur. And, and you, know, you were held in utter, utter contempt, and as if you were crazy. And, and why don't you just get out of here? That, that was the, the. And you felt, at least I did. I felt very isolated. Yes, and the. Um, you would actually be told sometimes that you're crazy. You have a psychological problem. Yeah. That you're attached to all of this this old stuff. You are uh, rigid psychologically. Rigid. You can't rigid, go along yeah. with the times. It's immature, yeah. Uh, yeah. and so on. And all of these these uh, arguments were trotted out at you yeah. uh, by the modernists. And yeah. when you're on the receiving end of something like that, uh, you are quite isolated. And when you're 19, 20, 21, uh, when you're browbeaten like that, you don't have a lot of response. You know, you, you, you just feel sort of crushed by it. So that, that was the, the context of the whole thing. Uh, yeah, and whatever, uh, you know, if you would see something in the way of uh, theological error or uh, liturgical abuses, uh, as, as we would talk about them in those days, there was nothing you could do about them. No. There's uh, um, absolutely nothing you could do about them that uh, any complaints would be um, ignored by the authorities, and uh, you would be treated as, as someone who's crazy for bringing the stuff up. Yes, yes, I remember that. Yeah. So, so uh, Bishop Sanborn was in seminary in New York when he... You were in the seminary at the time, right, Your Excellency? Yeah, I was in what they call the college seminary. Okay. And that's where you did your philosophy and humanities before going to the major seminary, which was four years of, of uh, theology and philosophy. And, uh, you know, I, I really had no intention of going to the major seminary in that diocese, and I don't think they wanted me either. I had made such a fuss. You can just imagine... <laughs> Uh, you, I, I can't. What, I can't imagine your. Yeah, you know, I, I tend to be soft-spoken, but <laughs> uh, you know, just imagine the way I am now, but with all of the enthusiasm of youth. Uh, I used to say some pretty bold things, and I don't think they wanted any part of me. So you know, it was sort of a dead-end street, uh, and so Archbishop Lefebvre came along exactly at the right moment for me because I really didn't know what to do. I had exhausted the idea of transferring to another diocese, and I really didn't know what to do. So he just sort of came at the right moment. Well, I think that would probably be a, an apt way of describing how that came along for you too, Father Chikata. You um, you were not at a seminary, but you were at a monastery at the time, correct? And then they had sent you. Well, over to the, the, the monastery was sort of the last stop on a uh, uh, on a journey where uh, I was trying to figure out what to do. 
because um, I experienced uh, in the seminary high school and then eventually in the seminary college in Milwaukee what uh, you know Bishop Sanborn just described all this crazy stuff and then at the end of your uh, it just simply got worse and worse in terms of the uh, things that you were being taught and and the things that were going on at the seminary and the what was being done at mass and so you looked around for for a refuge and I ended up in monastic order that liturgically was quite conservative, the Cistercians. And I figured that this would be a um, this would be a solution because you would be away from everything. Uh, you would be uh, away from the insanity of, of uh, parish life. Uh, you had a uh, monastic life and a liturgical life. We had. Uh, the new mass, but you had everything, uh, everything except the readings. Uh, everything was in Latin, so uh, you were isolated uh, pretty much from what was going on. And I, I thought that this would be a really a solution for myself. But um, they ended up, uh, the Cistercians ended up sending me to Europe in '75. So my involvement with the society is is uh, a bit later than Bishop Sanborn's, about three or four years later. And uh, at that point in um, uh, 75, uh, I was assigned to uh, reside at this very nice medieval monastery with beautiful uh, uh, beautiful chant and uh, a wonderful atmosphere. But then I discovered that the students were learning the same sort of errors that uh, I had been taught uh, at the uh, diocesan seminary in Milwaukee. So that was quite upsetting. But for me, at, at about the same at the same time, then the um, there was a controversy over Archbishop Lefevre and over his seminary in the press in Switzerland. And I found this very interesting. And uh, we. Um, had a um, uh, recreation room in the, the the monastery, and they would have the uh, two daily papers in there, two uh, Swiss daily papers. And I remember reading um, about Archbishop Lefevre and his his battles with the modernists, and agreeing with them, saying, you know, this thinking this guy knows what he's he's talking about. He's put his finger on the uh, on the problem in the church. And uh, as the uh, life in the monastery was uh, becoming more and more uh, intolerable because you you realize what um, sort of theology you're going to be uh, learning, then I decided that uh, I would leave the order and uh, join Archbishop Lefebvre. So tell us a little bit about your first meeting with him and what the impressions were. Well, uh, actually... I uh, don't believe I met him personally right away. I um, uh, returned to uh, returned to America in uh, uh, July of that year, and then went to uh, Ekon, which is in southern Switzerland, where the Archbishop and his seminary were uh, located in uh, September, in the fall. And um, the uh, impression one got of him at first was uh, you know the the the, uh, the public impression of him certainly as uh, you know a very uh, eloquent preacher uh, even though my french was not um, 
all that good at that point. Uh, I, I could make it out, and uh, you could tell that he really had something to say in the way in which he expressed himself. And he said Mass in a, a very uh, devout way and uh, conducted him, himself as one would expect a, um, uh, a good religious superior to conduct himself, his, uh, his, his uh, personal bearing and so on. I was familiar with that from uh, being in the uh, Cistercian order, and you could tell by looking at him uh, and how he acted in community life that uh, he really had what they would call the right stuff. <laughs> mm. uh, I guess this question would be both for both of you, Your Excellency and Father. How was he as a professor? And I know you had said you started Your Excellency by saying he said some very strong stuff at the time. So I suppose we can kind of relate that to how we, how he was as a professor. Was he sometimes very strong in class and sometimes a little bit more, uh, I think Bishop Sanborn would use the phrase accommodationist, or what, in the early days was it always quite strong in the uh, in the classroom? He, he was never in the classroom. Um, he gave spiritual conferences from time to time, and they yes. were very good. Uh, he was He certainly knew his ascetical theology and... Uh, he he had uh, a lot of common sense uh, in in the spiritual life as well. Uh, I always everybody enjoyed his spiritual conferences, and and he stuck pretty much to the topic. He didn't use the spiritual conference as a like an indoctrination <clears throat> session or anything like that. He he, he kept to his subject uh, very well, and uh, so he but he was never in the classroom. Uh, he would have been great in the classroom, I think, but yeah. He uh, was very much a missionary, and he never really stayed around for more than five days, I would say. Mm -hmm. Wow. He, yes, he was uh, very much on the road, and that, that's how he managed to build up the Society of St. Pius X, for the reason that he um, uh, constantly, I mean, don't forget, he started out at age 65 in this whole project, he was, uh, and uh, he was um, 65 in 1970. So he was mm -hmm. constantly on the road in Europe by car, almost always by car. Mm -hmm. And then he was going all around the world eventually. Uh, and uh, he was a missionary. He was not the type of person to sit at home or to – he was not sedentary in any way whatsoever. So he was never in the classroom. Uh, and uh, so, but he, we did hear conferences from him, and they were very good. And uh, uh, so, uh, all of that was very positive about him. As as one gets older, you appreciate uh, what a sacrifice it is to travel when you're older in the '60s. And I often think uh, uh, think about him when I have to travel around to do something myself. I mean, he went all over the place; these ter terrifically strenuous journeys. And, I mean, I'm uh, approaching you know, 65, and I would like to quit. <laughs> <laughs> and that's and that's and that's just when he got started. Yeah, <laughs> that's when he got. I always think about that. I mean, uh, oh, to drag yourself on those planes and and you know, just all that travel is very strenuous, especially uh, as you get older. Your you know your circulation isn't as good, and your muscles don't work as well, and <laughs> there's all kinds of problems that come up. Yeah. 
Um, Father Takata, do you have anything to add on to what uh, His Excellency was saying about his interaction at the seminary, spiritual conferences, that sort of thing? Well, it, it, it was this, uh, uh, the same thing. We did not have him, uh, to my uh, generation, did not have him in a class either. Uh, Bishop Sanborn was uh, ordained the year before I arrived, and we didn't have any... Uh, um, uh, classes by Archbishop Lefebvre, but the spiritual conferences were really um, were really quite quite excellent. Uh, he gave not only spiritual conferences, but then um, he would talk uh, about the uh, situation vis-a-vis Paul the Sixth and and what was going on there, and those of course were always. Uh, quite interesting, and being seminarians, you know, we had our our uh, ears open uh, uh, very much for what he was um, uh, for what he would say, the different things that he was uh, he would report. So, um, and, and you you both talked about travel, so I'm thinking you you may not have traveled with him very much as seminarians, but you probably, especially as sort of the vanguard of, um, of the American fleet, you could say, traveled quite a bit with him here in the United States. What um, what was he like when he was traveling? What did you observe about him? What did you notice in the way that people reacted to him, lay people or clergy? Um, what was that traveling like with him? Well, he he was always um, very simple in his tastes uh, as far as travel was concerned. He never stayed in any kind of posh situation. As a matter of fact, I remember in Rochester, New York, there was prepared for him some sort of uh, imperial suite or something in the nicest hotel in Rochester. He refused to stay in it. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, and, and you know, he he was uh, as a religious. I think he was faithful to his vow of poverty as much as you can be when you travel. Uh, he, you know, I think uh, actually when you become a bishop, you're dispensed of it for that mm-hmm. reason. But uh, he still lived up to the spirit of it. I mean, he, he was never one to travel in style, so to speak, and uh, and I think in almost all cases he went over in coach class, which was a little bit better than now. I mean, because planes were usually half full or so, you know. It was, uh, but he nevertheless he he traveled in in uh, economy almost all the time, and um, he uh, just had very simple taste and all of that, even though he came from a fairly well-to-do family in northern France. So I think that uh, he took very seriously his vow of poverty. Uh, He was uh, very energetic in seeing the faithful and giving speeches. Uh, And, uh, you know, he would uh, stay up uh, late night and, you know, if there were a conference. he, He was never one to put off a meeting with lay people in order to promote the cause, uh, always. Uh, and and to now I, I don't know how he did it. I mean, I really don't know how he did it. He had a great deal of zeal with regard to that. And the the people, of course, loved him. It, it, you see, that's, he had a, a persona that was immediately... Uh, the only word is attractive. I mean, mm-hmm. the, uh, immediately you were drawn to him. Everybody was. He, there was something about him that that pulled you. It was uh, he was at once pleasant but serious, and uh, he he was approachable but uh, never got too close. You know, he, yeah. he 
he had a good sense of humor, but he never said the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he, he just had a, a perfect balance uh, in his personality and his character, uh, probably from his piety and, and his, his practice of, as a religious. I would say a great deal of that was due to that. And um, so he was immediately attractive, and and immediately you were ready to uh, kind of surrender your intellect to him, you know, that we'll, we'll just follow you, tell us what to do, we'll follow you. And uh, that, that, was, uh, that happened a great deal, I noticed, you know, that uh, he was very presentable, so to speak, and uh, uh, people were drawn to him. Has any he um, uh, in pursuit of uh, promoting the cause? Uh, he f- was also very energetic in terms of publicity and uh, uh, talking with the press, handling uh, the press, and uh, being very um, uh, very conscious of that. That uh, that he had an important cause to uh, promote, and that uh, you know it was not just about him. But that there was a, a, a larger, uh, a larger point to what he was doing. So uh, he seemed to be, uh, you know, very much aware of that, and he uh, knew really, I think, how to use the publicity very effectively to get the point uh, uh, points across that he wanted to get across, and uh, that was very good for the cause. Yeah. If I would say both of you probably learned from that. Sorry. Uh, no, I'm, no, I'm saying, saying that if the Society of St. Pius X is as big as it is today, it's because he put so much energy into founding it. Mm. When when I think about what you were saying about personal religious habits, I think sometimes lay people, uh, we're not... We're not in that situation where we get to travel with clergy or we are within, you know, Father Chicago alluded to having lived in a monastery, having been part of that life. Um, and that's obviously a different, there's a different perspective when you're a secular priest, uh, not in a religious order. What were some personal habits of piety you may not have adopted them yourself or something that you incorporated, something where this was something particular to him or, or something you thought that was just a, a really good habit ingrained at the time that clearly was not part of what the Novus Ordo clergy even thought about, that the, 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 the contrast between where you were coming from and, and what you were doing with him. Well, I, you know, I, I think that he, he didn't do anything extraordinary, but what was extraordinary in him is that he followed the rules of piety very, very carefully and seriously. And that was very clear in him. I mean, he was a, a prayerful man, and, and uh, you know, you could tell that he was sticking to a rule, uh, and, uh, and he had a lot of self-discipline. That is extraordinary. <laughs> that, that uh, you know, for the, 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 just the general religious spirit to penetrate that much into a man is extraordinary, uh, and uh, so I, you know it's maybe difficult for a layperson to understand that. But uh, especially as a bishop, and especially mixing it in with travel, travel tends to be very disruptive of of all sorts of uh, uh, you know duties. It's it's unpredictable, and uh, so he. Um, 
uh, but he overcame all of those obstacles, and, uh, and you know, I, I don't think anybody could fault him in any way whatsoever for uh, a lack of personal piety and uh, for obeying the rules. Yeah, just to uh, you know, underline what Bishop Sanborn said, it's um, uh, that um, it is one thing to observe, you know, a, uh, a religious. Uh, rule of life in a stable institution where you don't move around. But um, the fact that he was able to uh, do this uh, consistently on the road, he sort of took his monastery with him. And that was something that one noticed, I certainly noticed, and and it was uh, very impressive and very edifying. Yes. Yes. Well, for those of you who are just joining us, you are listening to Clerical Conversations on the Crisis. Um, I'm your host, Dean Hunter, and we're joined by our regular guest, His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn of Most Holy Trinity Seminary uh, in Brooksville, Florida, um, Father Anthony Chicada of St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church, who's normally up in Westchester, Ohio, but is, I, I hope, enjoying warmer weather this week uh, while he's a professor down at the seminary. Um, I, it's a very cold day in the Midwest, Father, so I can I, I can only hope that it's a little warmer down in Florida. Uh, it is. We only we'll got up to 80 girl. today. It's been a little on the cool side. <laughs> <laughs> um, for any uh, lay people um, who uh, I, I suppose that were were, were uh, around when the Archbishop was here in the United States, we'd love to have you call in, share any of your personal stories. We Though there might not be too many out there, our telephone number is 949-272-9417. Again, that's 949-272-9417. And if you were old enough to have personally met the Archbishop and you're savvy enough to use Twitter, uh, the the two of you who I'm talking to can uh, put your questions uh, to us on Twitter using the handle at TrueRestoration. Um, you know, at this point, um, Your Excellency Father, you know, someone who either has been listening to the show from the beginning or maybe tuned in halfway through, you know, they're getting a little suspicious here. They're going to say, all right, what's the catch? Because uh, you've only got good things to say about the Archbishop personally and about your experiences with him, but you're not part of the Society of St. Pius X anymore. So, you know, in the spirit of consistency, Your Excellency and Father, how do you how do you divide the edifying example you have of this man from the fact that you didn't you didn't stick to, you know, the his line. You didn't you, you said yourself that his habits made you want to submit to his um to his way of life, and it made you feel relaxed. It was certainly not the antagonistic atmosphere you had at the Nova Sordo Seminary where you were always on guard and you were alone. Now you were with people who wanted to, to celebrate the same Mass that you did, or at least there were a, 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 lar- a larger amount. How do you reconcile the fact that, you know, you, you, you took a different path? And I want to wrap up, I want to wrap into that, how you dealt with the Archbishop regarding these matters, but to the person who's listening, who's shocked, shocked, to find out that uh, His Excellency and Father have anything good to say about Archbishop Lefebvre, um, what do you say to them? Well, um, I, I would say this, that it's a... Um, the question is, why did we 
uh, go to Archbishop Lefevre, and why did we go to the uh, to his seminary in Switzerland? And the reason we did so is we wanted to be uh, good priests who were um, faithful to Catholic teaching and who fought war against modernism. And that that is why we went to uh, Cone and why we got involved in uh, the society and there's there is can be a difference between the um, uh, those larger principles in terms of the life life of the church and and what you feel obliged to do as a priest to battle error in modern times and the respect and the high regard you uh, have for someone's uh, uh, personal piety, such as we would have for Archbishop Lefebvre. When I was in, in the Cistercian Order, there were a number of uh, superiors who were extremely edifying, as edifying as Archbishop Lefebvre was, in terms of their, their uh, uh, religious example and their uh, uh, personal piety and, uh, and so on. But the reason I did not continue uh, with them in the Cistercian Order was over the larger doctrinal issue. And so um, that same thing would be applicable in the situation in uh, the Society of St. Pius X, that that while uh, we certainly respected very much, were very aware of Archbishop Lefebvre's personal virtues, nevertheless, there in many cases... On many issues, there was something beyond that, and that's where the disagreements came in. Yes, I would uh, concur with that. I, I would add this, that the 1970s were, especially at Icona, a great learning experience. And, you know, I entered with the thought, as I said, that Paul VI was, you know, this wonderful man that was essentially gagged in Rome. Yep. And that it was a good idea, Archbishop Lefebvre's idea of establishing houses and with diocesan approval and working alongside, or if not alongside, at least uh, in, in connection with the Novus Ordo clergy, that that was a, a good solution to this whole problem. We could have our own little island, and uh, you know, the we wouldn't bother them; they wouldn't bother us. That was the that was what he was holding out at that time. That didn't bother me at all. Because and you could and you could you could build up brick by brick. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> As someone said, yes. And, and uh, but you know, when you're in a traditional seminary and you have access to books, you talk to people. Uh, you your focus is all different. You're starting to take in a lot of information, especially information that he himself gave us. So he was at the council. So he would tell us what went on at the council. And your jaw would drop because the council to you was a one, another wonderful thing that was just <laughs> misinterpreted by those that evil entourage. And uh, you know, so you hear. I mean, this this bishop said this, and this one said that. And you hear all of these machinations, and you start thinking, and and you're reading, and you're listening, and so you. I went through a whole uh, development of my position at at Acom. And so, as Father Chikata said, you eventually came to a fork in the road that you saw what the Catholic faith demanded of you as a seminarian and a priest, and then you saw Archbishop Lefebvre's path as 
something that was should not be. That is of of reconciling this group with the moderates. You see, and that that became uh, a much darker picture. And so they, they gradually, little by little, you saw a dichotomy between his path and the church's path. Uh, and uh, this was on the liturgical level and on uh, never, I mean, not, it didn't enter doctrine too much, but uh, the uh, more uh, how to deal with the problem, mm-hmm. uh, how to deal with the, the problem in the church. And um, so... Uh, so that that's then it, that fissure became greater and greater, bigger and bigger, especially after 1978. The it, it in 1974, five and six and seven, it seemed as though he was on the path of saying we can have nothing to do with the Novus Ordo. It seemed like as if he were going to do that. 1978, with the with the uh, election of John Paul II, it all changed. And that's when he put himself on the path of reconciliation with the modernists, and we were on the path of anti-reconciliation, <laughs> uh, firmly there, and, and that's where the, the split already started to take place. So I, I, I guess I would characterize that um, as, as he was on the accommodationist path and you were on the anti-accommodationist path. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Um, when I'm thinking about it, and you, you refer to, and obviously one of, um, I, I may not have shared this with you recently, your actually father, but one the the show that we did um, on Restoration Radio on the election of Francis I, most listened to show of all time, tens of thousands of listens, and we were talking about, you know, what happens in the post-Vatican II church when there's an election, and I wonder, you know, what was it like for you all, um, at the time of the death of Paul VI. So in 1976, we have declarations like, uh, we have nothing to do with this schismatic church. This schismatic church is not the Catholic church. Uh, You know, uh, you want to suspend me? You know, you can't fire me, I quit. Uh, Kind of um, attitude from the archbishop. Um, What was the the idea? It's like, okay, well, Paul VI is dead. Uh, You know, was there hope that there was going to be either from the archbishop or from your fellow clergy in the Society of St. Pius X at the time? Because, you know, we're looking at the, the most recent post-Vatican II table conclave that we just mm-hmm. experienced. What was it like back then? There was a hope that somehow the thing would turn around with the, was, say, you know, if Cardinal Siri were elected. There was some sort of hope because it was still salvageable at that point. Vatican II was still young. It was... Uh, the changes were still fresh in people's minds. There was still a large population that had been raised before Vatican II. So there was, uh, you know, some thought that maybe, maybe it's like the Wicked Witch is dead, and now yeah. things will will be better, you know. And and uh, uh, there was some thought of that, but really no one knew what would happen. Uh, it was it was a time of a great deal of insert, uh, lack of certitude. I just remember that day, August 6, 1978, is one of the happiest days of my life. <laughs> I mean, and as I always point out, not only were we happy, but also the liberals were happy. He was like one of the most hated people in in you know in history. I mean, nobody liked him. Everybody detested Paul VI. Uh, 
yes, he was just a, a you know a very unpopular person. Let's put it that way. And uh, so, um, so it, it was lack of certitude, but you you always hold out hope. I mean, you always wonder when God will intervene and set the thing aright. You know, and who knows how he will do that. Yeah, I was just reading some of the accounts of Lady Thatcher dying in England, and people, you know, called in and said, "I've been saving this bottle of champagne for 15 years." Mm-hmm. And, and so, with that sort of attitude, uh, you, did you have a bottle of champagne that you had ready, Your, your Excellency? For, for no, because he died quite suddenly and unexpectedly. At least, you know, as far as the news media was was concerned, uh, the. Um, the uh, I mean, I just heard it. Somebody told me, you know, he died today. Nobody knew that he was approaching death. At least it was not being said. Mm. And um, so, uh, no, there was no bottle of champagne. It was on a Sunday, actually. I remember it. And uh, it was on a Sunday, and I had to say an afternoon mass. But uh, that was... Now, I don't think anyone expected, though, the bear hug from John Paul II. And it was... I don't think anyone expected that John Paul II would attempt to reconcile Lefebvre. Uh, that was a surprise move. Yes, and, yes. and the whole direction after all of the rhetoric for three or four years against the modernists and the conciliar church and on and on, uh, it was a, a shock to see him uh, start to get soft with, with the modernists and soft with John Paul, too. Uh, it was a shock. And it was a worry, too. Well, uh, you, you, you mentioned some of these shocking things, and, um, you know, both of you have shared on different shows and on different occasions stories that uh, he shared. And I think one of the, the things that a lot of lay people don't get to experience, that I one of the things I really enjoy about visiting uh, seminaries or uh, religious places is uh, table conversation, um, where you get to hear sort of some of the battle line stories, you know, what are priests dealing with out in the missions, and and uh, stories of, you know, good things and, and, and weird things that the faithful are doing. Um, what were, when, when you remember some of the, the sort of shocking things you heard, either about Paul VI, or about the council, or about his interactions with uh, post-Vatican II bishops. Can you remember any stories that you remember him telling you? And you were just you remember being stunned by them. Hmm. Uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, Paul the Sixth. I don't know if he has any stories about Paul the Sixth. Well, he had that famous story you, of John. The, yeah, you told that story of John the Twenty Third. Some listeners might not know that. Your Excellency, if you want to share that. Yes, he went to John the Twenty Third shortly after the election of John the Twenty Third, and don't forget, he was, uh, I think, at that point, Superior General of the Holy Ghost Fathers. And uh, so he said to, um, he sat down with John the Twenty Third, and uh, John the Twenty Third told him, in the course of this conversation, that one of the first things that he did after being elected was to go and look up his file at the Holy Office. And uh, in it, it it said suspect of modernism, <laughs> and and he laughed and said to to Archbishop Lefebvre, "Imagine me a modernist." If <laughs> 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 that were some absurd thing, and uh, so that that's uh, I mean I remember Archbishop Lefebvre telling me that story. That, that's very firsthand. Um, uh, as far as Paul the Sixth, I, I don't. 
I don't think he had too much interaction with Paul VI. I can't remember any stories that he told about Paul VI, at least to me. Uh, I, I, you know, and don't forget he was uh, moved into France uh, into a very um, poor diocese in France, Tulle, uh by John the Twenty Third, and so he was out of the Vatican in that sense. He was no longer apostolic delegate to French West Africa. He was confined to a little diocese uh, in uh, in the late sixties. If I'm not, no, wait a minute. I'm no, I'm sorry. Back up. I'm I have it wrong. He was apostolic delegate in the 50s and early 60s. Then he was uh, during the Council Superior General of the Holy Ghost Fathers. Then he was given uh no, I'm sorry. Tool came in between. Then he was Superior General and he resigned as Superior General in 1969. Uh but I, I, in any case, I never heard him say give any stories about politics. Okay. Didn't he? Uh, uh, you would remember this better than I, Your Excellency. Didn't he also give, uh, uh, relay some uh, John the Twenty Third anecdote about Fatima, and the secret of Fatima? Yes. The, there was a conference called. Uh, well, John the Twenty Third was uh, about to open the secret of Fatima. Uh, and this was related to me directly by Archbishop Lefebvre. And uh, on the day of the opening, uh, he was not there for the opening. No one was there except, I think, Cardinal Taviani. And but Cardinal Taviani had a little meeting with those who were invited uh, after the opening. And uh, this was in 1960. And. Uh, the Cardinal Ottaviani said the Holy Father opened it, read it, put it back in the envelope, and put it back in the safe. And his only comment was, this does not concern my pontificate. Mm. And that was the end of it. <laughs> all that was said. They were all expecting, we're going, we're going to hear the secret. Yeah, <laughs> and and you know again, mouths were dropping. That that this is all we get is that's it. You know, it doesn't concern my pontificate, and and there is no revelation of the secret. So, uh, but that that's a, a very accurately uh, told story of what Archbishop has ever told me. Uh, so that's, uh, but. Um, uh, I know he had a number of stories about Africa with uh, eating monkey brains. I think. And well, yeah, that might that might maybe not shock you, maybe more funny. I know. I, I remember. Uh, <laughs> well, he was. He, he was actually he was a good shot, and he yeah. said they would go up the river. I think he told us at dinner too. Uh, they would go up the river, and the navies would row the canoe, and he'd sit in the back with a rifle and shoot monkeys. Mm-hmm. And the, the uh, they go and get the the, the monkeys he shot at shore, and then I guess attempt to dry them or something like that on the back of the boat. And he said he could never eat monkey any part of the monkey. He'd generally just eat its brains. Not 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 exactly classic French cuisine. No, no, no. no, no, no. no, no. That, that's but definitely he, uh, rough in it. 
he detached himself from all of that, and I always noticed that he uh, was very cosmopolitan in this sense that uh, he adapted very well to any society or, or country that he was in, uh, and he did not uh, object to whatever, unless it was immoral or something. But you know, as far as people's customs, he had no problem adapting to people's customs, which was very much in his favor too. Um, he actually shocked the French by wearing a uh, the black suit and ravi, what priests normally wear in this country and in England, uh, Catholic priests. He shocked the French by wearing that to this country because the French have this idea that the only proper attire on the street for a priest is a cassock and that if you wear anything else, you're a modernist. So it, when we show up in France in a black suit and rabbi, the way we walk around here, it's a terrible shock and scandal because we're, mm. we're wearing a sandwich sign that says, I am a modernist. Uh, whereas he understood the customs, he, you know, whereas he always wore his, hab- his uh, habit or cassock in France. Uh, he, uh, and when he went to England, this country and Australia, he wore his black suit. Yeah. Mm. Well, uh, Father, I, I, uh, I've got a, a caller that I, I want to go and check uh, if they have a question or a comment. In the meantime, I thought you might share the story about um, uh, uh, the French version of I, I, I do not say that uh, uh, there is no pope, but in, 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 in the sort of uproar that created at table. So I, I'll, I'll attend to the caller, and I'll, I'll leave you to share that story with our listeners, and I'll be back in a moment. Oh, on that note, I don't. I, I don't want to. Uh, I will leave pronouncing the French to you, Your Excellency, lest I start a war between the United States and France. <laughs> I, I was about to say that. What you might come out with? It. <laughs> <laughs> you never know what will happen. Well, what you know, what Stephen was is uh, was uh, talking about. I don't know if you were present, uh, Your Excellency. For I that, was not. No, you're not. Yeah, uh, I think it was after a first mass on Long Island, and we were having. Uh, at dinner at, at uh, Oyster Bay with uh, Archbishop Lefebvre, and there's a whole group of priests. And um, I actually was uh, pressing him a little bit on the question of the Pope. And uh, I set it up by saying, well, is the um, uh, is in fact religious liberty a heresy? And he said, yes, uh, it is in, in fact a heresy, and he explained that a little bit. And so then I took it to the next point and said, well, Paul VI, um, you know, teaches this particular heresies. Uh, And then he um, knew exactly where I was uh, going with this and uh, (laughs) laughed and said, um, if you give the phrase, Your Excellency. Uh, Je ne dis pas que le pape n'est pas pape, mais je ne dis pas non plus qu'on ne peut pas dire que le pape n'est pas pape. (laughs) Which means? (laughs) It means, I don't say that the pope is not the pope, but I don't say either that one cannot say that the pope is not the pope. So, uh, and it sounded quite funny in French, and he was quite amused by by the way he had formulated it for us, and we all had a good laugh. Mm -hmm. And uh, I certainly took him at his word, but um, it wasn't um, terribly long after that that uh, things got going again with um, uh, John Paul II and uh, the 
uh, Archbishop was sort of set on the reconciliation track. Mm-hmm. It was very soon after that, uh, which was unfortunate. But, uh, you know, he did say it, and, um, uh, you know, I was certainly one of those who operated under uh, the impression that he meant what he said, mm-hmm. that one could discuss those issues. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the things that uh, I don't know about your experiences uh, with Archbishop Lefebvre as a seminarian, but, I mean, there are a number of times that uh, I simply went to ask him questions uh, about uh, different issues. And uh, I didn't have the, I didn't have a hesitation for uh, doing that because I, I uh, found him personally quite approachable. Uh, he was very you know, approachable. You know, as, as, uh, even for a seminarian, uh, asking the questions, you'd uh, go to, go to his room and you'd knock on his door and um, he would uh, receive you and you'd kind of put your question to him and get an answer. Yes, he was very approachable and uh, very open. I mean, you didn't get the impression that he was hiding anything from you. or He was very good that way. I remember a a little personal anecdote where I almost destroyed his ring. (laughs) He had a beautiful ring and a huge amethyst and I was preparing for some ceremony uh, and uh, I was swinging the thurible to get the, the coals going. He comes around the corner, and that thurible just just managed to hit that amethyst perfectly. <laughs> Bang. And and I just wanted to die. I, mean, I didn't know he was coming. He was in a hurry. And he came yes. quickly around the corner, and I, I hit his ring. I, I just thought I just wanted to die, but he was okay with it. He was not, uh, you know. He just looked at it. He said, "I hope it's not cracked." Uh, and uh, but he realized that you know it was a complete accident. And another time, I remember I found him sweeping the hallways <laughs> at a cone, and I said, "Why don't you let me do that?" <laughs> but you know, it just he saw some dust balls, and he thought he would you know get the broom out and sweep the hallway. Uh, mm. and, was, and he, I don't think he did that, but I just thought, well, it needs to be done, so I better do it, you know. So, uh, uh, yeah, you never, you did not, uh, and you got the impression with this sort of thing from him that it was just sort of natural. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it wasn't. None of it was affected, like this this uh, uh, Bergoglio character. Now he wasn't I mean, putting his, huma- his humility on show. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't you know on the the Swiss News Network or whatever. Um, the uh, and uh, knowing Lefebvre personally, knowing the Archbishop personally, and you see how he uh, how he, he would act, all of this seemed uh, quite quite natural. Yeah, and in yes. character. Yes, he was not pretentious at all. No, not at all. You know, um, Your Excellency and Father, you both come from backgrounds where you, you, you acknowledge that you've run into people, you know, that were were in the Novus Ordo Church who maybe had a, some personal piety to them. And, you know, sometimes, um, you know, I was asking for, for, for funny stories, but I think part of it is there are so many pictures of Archbishop Lefebvre where he's laughing or smiling. And I think those of us who never saw him, never met him, um, get the impression that he was just generally a happy person. Uh, he, he was obviously talking about some very dire things, uh, the crisis in the church and that sort of thing. But there are many circumstances where he's smiling. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that, that particular aspect of his personality was present? Uh, he was generally a, a very even-tempered 
pleasant person. I mean, I can count on one hand the times that I, well, maybe two hands, the times that I saw him uh, get worked up. Uh, he did, you know, have an angry side to him. Occasionally he'd get worked up. Uh, but uh, he, uh, most of the time, was very even-tempered and pleasant. Always in control of himself, though. He, he, there was never a time that he was not in control of himself, uh, except maybe those those angry moments. But uh, the um, uh, you know, as a rule, he was absolutely uh, calm and pleasant to everyone, uh, and uh, it was nice to be around. You know, everybody was happy when the archbishop was there, and when he left out on the trips that he made, uh, you felt a little insecure, slightly, you know, abandoned. <laughs> you just felt better when he was there. Uh, so, uh, in fact, he, he used to even, he joked about that once, because, of course, he was the only bishop that, um, uh, you know, was around to ordain us at that point. And uh, he made a joke at a conference saying that he, he can almost hear when, when he sneezes, or coughs in the back of the chapel, the seminarians sort of pray uh, all together, oh God, please let him live till he ordains <laughs> Yes, he had some sort of lung problem at a certain point, which made him go into a very severe coughing spell. Nothing life-threatening or anything, but it sure sounded like it. Yeah, oh. and and I you didn't know that he had this condition. You just thought, well, you know, this is it. He's he's giving up the ghost, and uh, I re he would do that fairly often. Have those coughing spells, and I remember thinking that, oh my goodness, you know, this is the end for him. And uh, but uh, no, he lived a long time. And, uh, you know. Yeah, in my second year there, he was right behind me in the chapel. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, you know would would have those uh, uh, fits occasionally, uh, like that. But having him behind you was, of course, a good motivation to kneel up straight, right? <laughs> 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 For any seminarian. Go ahead, Jackson. No, I just he was a pleasant person. He yeah. For those of you who are just joining us, you're listening to Clerical Conversations on the Crisis. Uh, I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, uh, and we're joined by a regular guest, um, His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida, and Father Anthony Chicada, Associate Pastor up at um, St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church in, in Westchester, Ohio. And today we've been talking about Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre, um, sort of the personal side, a lot of the time is uh, when we read about the Archbishop, we read about sermons he's given, but there are so few people around today who've had a chance to actually meet him, work side by side with him, and, and both His Excellency and Father had a chance to um, to meet him. Um, Your Excellency Father, I've asked you this question in other interviews, other contexts before, but I think it's an appropriate time to re-ask that question here. Um, how do you think uh, the Archbishop was looked at in the traditional movement at the time of his death, and how is that different now, some 22 years on? Or is it not any different? What is the assessment uh, of him from the traditional Catholic perspective? And when I say traditional Catholic, I'm painting that broad swath of all the Motu people who just found out about the Latin Mass last week, all the way to your seminarians down in Brooksville. What what was the assessment in 91, and what's the assessment today? 
awful broad, but I mean, certainly uh, he uh, flew the flag and he kept things going. And, um, uh, you know, is a significant historical personage from that that point of view and uh, certainly gave uh, hope to a lot of us, uh, to a lot of people throughout the world and and kept the, uh, as it were, the the, um, uh, opposition to uh, Vatican II uh, going and and uh, on life support and certainly even built it up. Yes, that he did. I'd say this too that you wouldn't have any motu, you wouldn't have any indult, you wouldn't have any of those other things if he had not done what he did. Uh, that uh, if he had not insisted on retaining the traditional mass and and denouncing the new mass and and if he had not built up a resistance to it throughout the world, those modernists never would have conceded even jelly beans to the traditional movement. Uh, that, that, I think, should be said, that they have what they have because of Archbishop Lefebvre, whom they condemn in principle. Uh, so that's my opinion, anyway. Uh, as far as, but you know, you have a broad spectrum. There, but I think what Father Chiquetta said is accurate. That, he, in a general way, he did he did keep the torch of anti-Vatican II going, and uh, he uh, kept the torch of the traditional mass going. And uh, from that point of view, I think everyone sees him as, uh, to a greater or lesser extent, a rallying point. Yeah. Um, so let me, I guess, let me follow up on that question. If, if that's the assessment, uh, broadly speaking, what is the set of the contest uh, assessment of the archbishop? Because I think this ties back to my original question of people being in shock that you'd have such nice things to say about the archbishop when you when you deal with your seminarians, when you deal with the faithful people who either know or don't know the archbishop. Uh, what's how, what is the archbishop like from that perspective? Well, I mean, you uh, keep it on the level of ideas. I mean, the, their, uh, his, his uh, personal virtues are a separate issue from, uh, you know, some of his ideas, which were incorrect, and his, his approach to um, uh, fighting the, the, the battle against Vatican II. So it's it's a uh, uh, division between the the, the person and uh, the principle on the level of ideas. He set down all of the principles of state of Vicantism, but never drew the conclusion. His pointing out that Vatican II was the source of all of the problem establishes the principles of state of Vicantism. Yeah. Or his pointing out that that uh, the new mass is something wrong. Uh, establishes the principles of state of Vicantism. As a matter of fact, Cardinal Saper in 1974 cornered him on that very point. Are you saying then that the mass that the Roman pontiff has promulgated to the entire church is wrong? That it is uh, that it is evil? Is that what you're saying? That was the question, yes. essentially. And Archbishop Lefebvre understood the whole exactly where he was going with it, and he backed off. The the answer should have been yes. I'm saying that, and then the next conclusion would be Paul the Sixth is not the true Roman Pontiff because the Church is incapable of of promulgating something evil. 
But he understood that, and you see, that's why I say he, he gave all the principles of Sedevacantism, but never drew the conclusion. And well, and that's when how you, I would assess him. And, and when you say that, Your Excellency, I think about that famous quote from the suspension in 1976, where either of you, in, were both of you back in America at that point, or either of you in the seminary when he gave that uh, speech on his suspension on Dazzini? Uh, I think that was, was that the hot summer one, the Lille yes. uh, speech? Uh, I was in the United States at the time. I think we all were, because that was yes. in August. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. So, and, uh, so yeah. I, I wanted to read that, and I wanted to know, you know, then or now, you know, if you would take any any question with uh, what he said here. And uh, for those who've never heard this from the Archbishop, having had a chance to, to reflect on, on what he did and what His Excellency just shared about that story of Cardinal Saper, you know, what it means to sort of stare at this precipice. So this was on reflections on, on his suspension in 1976. He says, We are suspended ad divinis by the conciliar church, uh, from the conciliar church to which we have no wish to belong. The conciliar church is a schismatic church because it breaks with the Catholic church that has always been, it has its new dogmas, its new priesthood, its new institutions, its new worship, all already condemned by the Church in many a document, official and definitive. This is why the founders of the Conciliar Church insist so much on, on obedience to today's Church, prescinding from yesterday's Church as though it no longer existed. This Conciliar Church is schismatic because it has taken as a basis for its updating principles opposed to those of the Catholic Church. This Conciliar Church is therefore not Catholic. To whatever extent Pope, bishops, priests, or faithful adhere to this new Church, they separate themselves from the Catholic Church. For for people who look at that, and you know, they, uh, now with you got the uh, strict observance of the society, where it's saying they're trying to get back to the principles of Archbishop Lefebvre. Some people would say, "Well, look, here are the principles of Archbishop Lefebvre. Um, you know, why why dodge what the Archbishop said here? Would you have? Did you agree with what he said in 1976? Do you agree now? And, and what do you think the implications of agreeing with that quote from the Archbishop are?" Well, uh, I think that is one column that belongs in the right-hand column of Archbishop Lefebvre. But I could cite to you other texts that are so accommodationist and reconciliationist, so to speak. As a matter of fact, uh, let me finish that sentence, that, that are equally uh, accommodationist as that is anti-accommodationist. I mean, there are many, many quotes and acts, facts, things that he did that point to the soft side. So that's point number one. Point number two is, I think in that speech, in that very speech, he makes reference to reconciling with the modernists at the end. I'm almost certain mm -hmm. it's not in that same speech. You have to look at the whole Lefebvre. You can't look at an isolated side of him. Uh, he never abandoned the idea of reconciling with the modernists. He never actually ever abandoned it and i i think that was the tragic flaw he, he is you know almost like a a, a greek tragic hero you know, somebody loaded with all of these virtues and power and 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 but that that one flaw of wanting to reconcile with the modernists ruined a lot of it ruined him in the sense that it 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 put him on a, a contradictory path and and so you can double column him and you would say is this the same person speaking 
Mm. You see, uh, you know, so it, the, you know, it, it, the the one cancels the other. I mean, what what was there? I would uh, in most grosso modo agree with. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a few things I would alter in it, but the the you could I could put a, another quote against it that would dissolve all of that. So it has no yes. teeth. Uh, which is which is why um, you know a year or so ago when the um, controversy um, came to the fore in the Society of Saint Pius X between uh, Bishop Fillet on one side and uh, as an accommodationist and the other bishops on the other side is supposedly not accommodationist that they both could cite the Archbishop yes mm-hmm. and be perf- and be perfectly correct yes. Uh, you know, in, in a, one one uh, one column and uh, another, the the left hand and the right hand column, and that is indeed the tragedy. When, when you're speaking in contradictories, the truth does not cancel out the falsehood. When when you're speaking in contradictories, it it, it what happens is that that you you just get uh, you get nothing. In the sense that that neither is correct, neither is true. Both are 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 uh, the 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 truth does not redeem the false in a contradictory situation. Uh, so you know what is true is his soft side or his truth uh, or his uh, his hard side. You know, and whatever you want. That's the problem with them, and I think it was a tragic flaw that that idea that he originally had of of getting his society approved in these various dioceses. That was the precise reason of going to Covington, uh, if you recall. Uh, sure. that, that's, uh, it was in the, that whole idea, and, and at that time that seemed to be a, a correct thing to do. But what he did not do, I think, was develop with as the Novus Ordo developed. I, I think that you know, he should have said at a certain point, well, it's obvious just exactly what he said there, obvious that this is a breakaway religion and that we can have nothing to do with it, uh, and then draw the practical conclusions therefrom. But he never did that. And and from our own point of view, I remember listening to these different statements that he made, the the, the sort of the right-hand statements, and you would think that, well, maybe he finally is going to do it. Mm-hmm. But, of course, he never did because he would never did. You know, uh, turn around and say something else that would be accommodationist. So... Um, uh, obviously, that was quite quite disappointing. Yeah. But he could have had the whole thing in his hands uh, and um, uh, done, I think, much more than he did. Uh, you know, to um, uh, against the errors of Vatican II, if uh, he had uh, stuck to the hard line. But yes, which is typical of saints. To stick to the hard line. Yeah. I mean, look up the lives of especially saints who are opposing heresy. Find one that has in any way soft-pedaled the heresy, either in word or in act. Find one. Yeah. Well, I, 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 Your Excellency, Father, I don't think anyone would uh, expect to hear anything other than the words hard line in any sentence <laughs> associated with, with either of you or with, uh, or with Restoration Radio in general. Um, 
But uh, I suppose I want to I want to tie into what you're saying and, and sort of bring our, our show to a conclusion today by talking about those who like me. Um, when we came into the traditional movement, Archbishop Lefebvre, as you say, is a sort of monumental figure. We looked at him, and so how many times have I heard someone say, "Well, the Archbishop was never said of a contest." So that's why I'm not said of a contest. I'm not smarter than or holier than the Archbishop. And you've just given them a whole bunch of ammunition about how the Archbishop was a holy man. So, I mean, how do we know better than a holier person? I'm just going to, so I'm a simple Catholic. I don't know anything. The Archbishop was smarter than me. He didn't go set of a contest. I'm not going to go set of a contest. There are quite a few of our listeners who find themselves in that camp. I was one of them myself years ago. How would you respond to them? That the Catholic Church transcends Archbishop Lefebvre. That Archbishop Lefebvre was, in many ways, a great man, that that he was a a great bishop, but that the Catholic Church and its sacred doctrine and theology far transcends any one person. And that the, the criterion is our conformity to the principles of Catholicism, not our conformity to an archbishop, one archbishop in the Church. Because you could take that same argument and, and apply it to the whole Novus Order hierarchy. Look at all of those Catholic bishops of Vatican II, how they were very pleased with Vatican II. Who am I to say that Vatican II is wrong when only a handful of bishops were opposed to it? You could take exactly the same argument and, and apply it there. So we should all be blowing up balloons. Uh, you know, it's true. Uh, you know, If you're going to apply the argument of authority, where do you end up? with the argument of authority. Mm. The, the, we follow our, and that was one of the, the problems we always bumped into with our European brethren, was that we followed the archbishop to the extent that he was faithful to the principles that he had enunciated to us, which were in conformity with the teaching of the Catholic Church. And if he deviated from that, even, whether in thought or in fact, and indeed, we would deviate from him. <laughs> we would not follow him down that path. That we always held to that, and he always knew that we were of that mind, and he was always uncomfortable with us Americans for that reason. And don't forget that all of us had been in Novus Ordo seminaries. A lot of the European seminarians had not been in Novus Ordo seminaries. We had witnessed firsthand all of the horrors of the Novus Ordo. And we wanted nothing to do with them. And also we had fought against our superiors and the the rectors of seminaries and various other individuals set over us based on Catholic principles. That was our our weapon, so to speak, Catholic principle. And we were ready to do the same if ever the Archbishop Lefebvre were to present us with something that was not in conformity with Catholicism or its practices or disciplines. Mm. That's what I would say. Yes, and uh, the uh, particularly the, the last part is something that uh, you know I'd like to emphasize that uh, I saw many very holy and very edifying men um, compromise the Catholic faith, and the fact that they were personally holy and. and uh, uh, personally edifying and, and had good intentions uh, 
was one thing, but uh, you cannot stand together with someone who compromises the Catholic faith in any way, shape, or form. And so it's, it's, it, it was always in uh, my case, and uh, certainly in the case of, uh, I think, all of the, the older Americans who got involved with the Society of St. Pius X and Archbishop Lefebvre, was, it was the question of, of principles, that uh, it was Catholic principles and Catholic doctrine we were there for. And if someone uh, did not represent those principles or contradicted that doctrine, um, if it was time to go. Um, well, I, I think all those points are well taken. Um, for those of you who are just joining us, you're at the tail end of our show um, on, the, on Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre. Uh, this has been our second episode of Clerical Conversations on the Crisis with our regular guests, His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn of Most Holy Trinity Seminary and Father Anthony Chicago, St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church. I've been your host, uh, Stephen Heiner. And I just want to take a second to um, kind of tie in that, you know, back back in the wild, woolly days of tradition of Catholicism, there wasn't a seminary. You had to, if you were an American, you had to go to France to, to, to find a seminary, but you don't have to do that here in the United States. We have we have several choices, and one of them is um, His Excellency, um, which I had uh, a chance to visit recently. Um, beautiful, peaceful. For those of us who are in the world because we're lay people, it's a great place to just escape, um, be without Internet, and, uh, and just um, spend time in prayer. And uh, if you'd like to know more about the seminary, if you'd like to send a contribution to the seminary, it will be well, well spent. Um, there was a young gentleman from um, Nigeria uh, who was just ordained to the subdiaconate in the last couple of weeks. So just around the corner from Nigeria, uh, coming all the way here to America to uh, to get ordained. So there's a lot of good work going on there. If you'd like to know more about their work, make a contribution so you can get uh, His Excellency's newsletter. Um, go ahead and send uh, a large check to uh, Most Holy Trinity <laughs> Seminary. No amount is too small. Or too We're still waiting for, for yours, Stephen. <laughs> I, I, I've, sent, I've sent one recently. Actually. In fact, I, I, will send, I will send another. Um, no, no I think if this small, is the point to say that you're breaking up. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no amount too large uh, to 1000 Spring Lake Highway, um, Brooksville, Florida, 34602. Again, 1000 Spring Lake Highway, Brooksville, Florida, 34602. Uh, and if you if you know a young man who um, might be interested in the seminary, write to His Excellency and and uh, maybe make an introduction. It may not be someone who who um, who is confused as we were talking about about where the Archbishop is, but they're they're maybe just confused about uh, where the Catholic Church is now, and um, they could get some straightening up. And and uh, Bishop Sanborn is just the person to do that. Um, if you uh, would like to uh, know a little bit about what Father Chicada is doing up in Ohio, uh, he's got a website called sggresources.org, um, and there you'll get all kinds of links to various uh, things that uh, Father Chicada has um, taken upon himself, and uh, and he still has lots to do, uh, even though people like me keep asking him to do more things. Uh, so uh, there, if you haven't had a chance to see, he's got um, some videos uh, on his YouTube channel. Uh, so if you go to youtube.com forward slash work of human hands, 
um, you'll see some of the videos he's done on the mass. Uh, he's he's been accommodationist for those of you who don't want to read a 500-page book. Um, he's done uh, six-minute <laughs> videos for you per chapter, uh, and and uh, those sorts of things aren't done for free. Uh, so if you'd like to thank um, Father, well, they are done for free. But of course, if you'd like to thank Father for his free work, um, you can write to him at 4900 Rialto Road. Um, that's in Westchester, Ohio, 45069. Again, 4900 Rialto Road, Westchester, Ohio, 45069. Um, Your Excellency, Father, I know you're very busy, and I caught you at the end of a, a normal school day at the seminary, so I will leave you to your rest. But thanks so much uh, for joining us, and I'm sure everyone will look forward to our next episode. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.